everybody and welcome to the all new, all different, all singing, all dancing smorgasbord podcast. I'm Tom Shapira and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry. I'm so sorry, I spent way too long in the phone booth. If I'm being honest with myself, I probably should have just called 911. This is a comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seekward, the best online and unusual source for comic books news, reviews, previews and critiques. Buy their books, watch their movies, read their articles. And don't forget that we are also on Patreon. Support smart criticism in comics. Yeah, uh, the reason I said this is an all new, all different, uh, all singing, all dancing, whatever type of podcast is that we're going to try a little something different from this for this episode. And if it works, possibly this will be our new structure. Because up until now, for the last, what is it, 58 episodes? 59. 50, 59 episodes. Me and Sean have been very regimented in... This is the news, this is the previews, this is the reviews. And we kind of, it's kind of grown a little stale on us. So we're going to try to do a little more freestyling type of discussion. Just see where it takes us. Yeah, I mean, at 60 episodes, we were long overdue for a podcast midlife crisis anyway. So we might as well have it now. Uh, So, Sean, there has been this movie coming out. Perhaps you've heard of it. Some people have been talking about it. It's called Logan. Yeah, not only have they been talking about it, I went to see it last night. Hmm. I went to see it uh, day it came out. Great. So let's talk about it a bit. Um, I thought it was okay. Uh, Daphne Keene, who plays X-23, stole the show. She was amazing. Absolutely fantastic. Highlight of the film. Patrick Stewart broke my heart, but that goes without saying. I did feel towards the end that it was trying a little too hard to distance itself from the fact that Wolverine is a part of the X-Men, which I thought was really, really weird because you have this scene at the very end, and I'm not going to spoil specific details, but obviously part of the premise of this film is that mutants have all been gone extinct, and then things happen. And all of this is sort of presented at the very end through exposition from an evil scientist who I could not believe was not Mr. Sinister, because that's his shtick, right? No, they, they've used the name, not so much the characteristics, the name of the guy who yeah, I know. in the comic is Xander one, Rice. one of the X-23, uh, I think, enemies, right? Sure, I'm not saying that he wasn't a canonical character, it's just that if you're going to go with an evil scientist who's messing around with genes and clones, I, I understand why you would go with Xander Rice, but Xander Rice is a nobody. Well, the the reason is that he's a nobody. This movie really wants to be the Unforgiven for the superhero universe. The the old... It it is a Western. It's the old cowboy going on a last job knowing that he is a dying breed. In in the cowboy movie, it's it's always the end of the West and the one last ride. And here it's the mutants are dying and it's the one last ride. And everything superhero-y and comic book-y is recontextualized as being... Something that is more akin up to the legend. There, this scene that was already in trailers, so it's not a spoiler, where they found a bunch of old X Men comic and they're saying it didn't happen, and if it did, it wasn't like this. Yeah. So it and it is very much like those scenes in again the Unforgiven, where you have uh, the not 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 Jack not Clint Eastwood, the Jackman character, uh, little little Bill. Reading, reading like old dying novel westerns and saying this is all like bullshit. This is never happened like this. Gunfights don't go on like this. You know the heroes don't wear a white hat. 
and right. so on and so forth. So it really wants to be that, and and it's not that. It's it's not a bad movie. It's no. a good movie. It's it's the best of the Wolverine movies. That's not well, a, lo- a big jump to a big hurdle to jump over. But that's it is the that. thing. That's the thing. I think that it does benefit in some way. Obviously, a lot of people have been trying to draw conclusions from the popular reception of Logan because it has been popularly received. People do seem to be enjoying it. They seem to have received it much better than other films in recent history involving ninety two percent on Rotten yeah, Tomatoes. Yeah, and that's fair. Now, there, but there are, I think a few factors that are playing into that that maybe people aren't considering. First of all, like you pointed out, the very obvious fact is that the first two Wolverine movies were not much to write home about. Lowered expectations. Yeah, I'm kind of okay with the Wolverine, the one where he goes to Japan. It was all right. I'm not going to say that it was a masterpiece or that it did Japan any favors, but... As a way to try to adapt that Frank Miller and Chris Claremont story where he goes to Japan and Mariko Yoshida and all of that. It's like, okay, fine. It was all right. The first one was a mess. The first one was a catastrophe. It did give us, ultimately, through a very, very protracted process, it did give us Ryan Reynolds' Deadpool. Mm-hmm. But that I'm not going to say that wasn't worth it, but on the other hand, I mean, there's nothing else in Wolverine Origins to recommend in any way. So there's that, right? There's the lowered expectations. And I think that also fans, and it's strange to say this, but it seems as though fans and studio executives are both trying to construct the same narrative. These are forces that are not usually aligned with each other. Very frequently, the studio executives inadvertently are working against what the fans want. But in this case, there does seem to be this very strong desire to create this narrative of R-rated superhero movies are successful because they're R-rated. DC, not two days after Logan's release, put out a press uh, notification or part of an interview or something, who can keep up with them, where they said something along the lines of, yes, we are now looking into the possibility of R-rated movies. Monkey see, monkey do, right? Valiant Entertainment, one day later, we're now considering doing NC-17 movies. Well, Valiant could actually get away with (laughs) it. No, no. I mean, you would have to deconstruct what Valiant is doing in the first place. Nobody's figured that out yet. But uh, they're doing a bloodshot TV, not like a straight-to-web series uh, with the Green Power Ranger, Sean. What? With the guy who played Tommy in the Power Rangers. Oh my God! Are you, wait, he's going to be Deadshot? Not Bloodshot. Bloodshot. Deadshot's yeah. the other guy, right? <laughs> Deadshot's DC. Bloodshot. Oh God. That's not, he's a good actor. You know? he's, a, he's a good he's a good action actor because he's actually is a martial artist and he has a very you know I've seen him in other stuff. He has like good physical presence for that type of role. So I don't know, could work. Ooh, I mean, but it, let's put it this way: if you're hiring the Green Ranger, whose heyday was twenty years ago, you're kind of I don't know. Maybe it's intentional. Maybe they see something I don't see. I don't know. Well, I will take a look at that. Bloodshot does not interest me for obvious reasons, but I guess it's worth taking a look. But I did want to ask you about this whole R ratings thing where people are treating it like it's some big revelation because of this one-two punch of Deadpool and then Logan. Well, it's wrong. It's uh, what what made Logan work. 
and I, I'm meaning work not in terms of I liking it or you're liking it, in terms of the audience liking it and the sales being way over the line, is A, the price was so much lower than the regular superhero movie. It's $97 million, which is, it's a lot of money. It's a blockbuster type money, but nowadays when we talk about quarter of a billion dollars as, as a budget for a Justice League or an Avengers movie, that's like less than half. Mm. So it's easier to make the money back. And B, the reason of all the goodwill is that it rode this iconic performance by Hugh Jackman. And I'm talking actual icon because he's been playing this character for 17 years. He has a bag and also Professor Xavier, Patrick Stewart. So when they both say before the movie, this is our last ride, this is the last time you'll see us as these characters that at this point many of the viewers grew up with, we were both mature when these movies came out a lot for a lot of people these are their only recollections of this character Hugh Jackman is not a Wolverine yeah he's not he's not the cinematic Wolverine he's just Wolverine this is the Wolverine so when he's so when he says I'm saying goodbye it has an impact that doesn't happen when you're replacing Spider-Man because by this point we had three Spider-Man five Batmans three Supermans but well that one Wolverine Yeah, that actually raises some interesting questions. Like, when you think about it, in terms of the number of times overall that Wolverine has been adapted, it's usually been animated TV. Batman, by contrast, you know, there were those rumors that Ben Affleck wants to leave. It's like, okay, we've had like six Batman already. What's the seventh? Big deal. So it does, I think you're absolutely right. The The presence of this character for so long has... He has come to embody that, I think, in a way that's closer to Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man as an actor who is very strongly identified with the role to the point where recasting would seem a mistake. Rude, yeah. I'm, uh, if Marvel Universe wants a new Iron Man, they'd have to kill off Tony and introduce a new guy for the character. They'll have to say... From now on, Rhodey is the Iron Man or something like that. Rhodey or this this new one, Riri Williams. Yeah, but they can't... I don't think they can just replace him as Tony Stark as long as this universe is ongoing. Yeah. Now, that's one of the reasons this movie works. And you can't just jump straight to making one of the big mistakes of Batman v Superman was assuming this sort of gravitas that comes with the Dark Knight Returns comic, Mm. which only works because it was built on... 50 years of continuity. Right. And and they just basically jumped straight to that Batman saying, well, you have to feel those things about that older, grayer Batman. And no, because I've never seen him grown old. Yeah. Well, and that- as the difference between, we've said before the podcast, there's a difference between adult and for adults. Logan is a movie for adults in terms of I would not take my 10-year-old nephew to watch it because blood and gore and tits. It's not, and no matter how many people are saying it right now, it's not an adult movie. It's not an adult comic book movie. American Splendor is an adult comic book movie. History of Violence is an adult comic book movie. Mm. Logan is a superhero movie that's a bit too embarrassed in its own superheroic past for adults. I don't know if I completely agree with that, because you're talking about a history of violence and American splendor. These com- these can just as easily be interpreted as being a little too full of themselves, not quite as sincere. A history of violence certainly goes overboard, I think, in a way that could absolutely be read as excessive for adult audiences, right? 
it is very much a work that goes a hundred and you know it cranks the dial up not to eleven but to twelve. Yeah. So I don't think it's that. I th- but I do think you you're right when you say that this was a film that tried very very hard to distance itself from its parent franchise, as it were. And the thing about that was, thinking back to the first R-rated success here, right, to Deadpool, Deadpool had Colossus and, uh, what was her name? Negas- Negasonic Teenage Warhead. Can I just call her not Cannonball? That's <laughs> a long name. I, I love that name. <laughs> Red Morrison used it once as a one-panel thing, and yeah. now it's... One of the most iconic X-Men around, apparently. So, yeah, and Deadpool, if I'm not mistaken, there's also a shot where he actually goes to the mansion. Yeah. So, it wasn't an X-Men film in the sense that it dealt with team dynamics and mutants will always be hated and feared and da-da-da-da. It wasn't that. It was a comic booky film. Yeah, it was a film that acknowledged Deadpool comes from this, right? Deadpool belongs in this world. Logan went... In the opposite direction, right? It's a chase film. It's an attempt to escape this powerful corporation and, uh, you know, road trip movie with these damaged people walking around. And there is no real justification for, oh, you know, the mutants. Well, they're gone. Okay. So, you know, that felt like they were trying too hard. Ultimately. With a bleak atmosphere. Well, and the thing about it is we already saw Days of Future Past. Was that movie not about reversing a bleak future into something more hopeful? I understand well, the aesthetic obviously helped, right? Because they did tap into a lot of pseudo-Mad Max sort of desolation and driving mm-hmm. and like boiling down the cast to a very manageable number. I think eventually Logan is going to remember it as a good movie that... If I'm reading it right, is going to start a long line of terrible movies trying to be it. Probably. Like we're going we're gonna to look at it. It's, gonna, it's exactly like Dark Knight, right? We're going to look at it and say, here's one great comic and all the terrible things that followed it. Probably. Because nobody, because the circumstances that led to the creation of The Dark Knight Returns could not be replicated by the lower brand of creators that tried to copy it and, and ended up copying only the violence and the gratuitous nudity. Yeah, and it's, I don't think it's really that revolutionary to say that studio executives do not understand why films succeed, why certain films succeed, I should say. Because you remember, we, we, we have seen something like this in the very recent past. You remember when Guardians of the Galaxy come out, suddenly there was an imperative, everything had to be funny. And we haven't really seen a success on that level until the trailer for Guardians 2 started coming out. And then, oh, yeah, that's what they meant. Right? It, it, it feels like the attempts to respond to that immediate spike of popularity, 99% of the time are misguided. They're latching onto the wrong things. Now, our ratings in themselves, I don't think that that's necessarily... It's not a good or bad thing, I think. It's just a tool, right? When you have an R rating, all that really says is you are permitted to be more excessive in the fields of sex and violence than you would otherwise be. I mean, Suicide Squad was PG-13, right? Yep. They still managed to objectify the hell out of Harley Quinn. 
meant so to kill the audience stop. expectations. You know, that was pretty sure. brutal. So that didn't, you know, that didn't change anything about the film. It didn't stop them from putting her in those ridiculous short shorts and having her bend over all the time. What, so what should be learned? The, sorry. No, I'm just saying if they're going to if they're going to make bad films, I disagree with what you're saying that you know it's going to inspire bad films. I think the bad films are going to that are going to come out would have come out anyway, and they would have been bad anyway. It doesn't stop. So anything. you're saying the difference is going to be between a bad PG-13 X Force movie or a terrible R-rated X Force movie. Hey, there could be a good X Force movie. Who knows? I it depends so much on who's making it, right? Fox. The people who brought you X-Men Apocalypse and X-Men Origin Wolverine and were forced into, cajoled into, pushed into making both Deadpool and Logan. These are movies that they didn't want to make, that the actors forced them to make pretty much. But Every they time still made Fox, them. Yeah, but they made them against the wheel. Every time Fox followed their own instincts, we, we got a pretty terrible set of movies when it comes to comic books. Sure. Movies. Fantastic. They, they that, that's them or Sony? I don't remember. No, that's them. That's Fox. Yeah, Fantastic was uh, Fox. Yeah. No, that's uh, true. They don't. But you know, I just think that the it it really does come down to the talent that they have, and to the people that they have working about it. Studio execs are never going to figure this out. You know, Suicide Squad. Like to put it another way, Suicide Squad. If we look at that as an example, would have been bad no matter what rating it had. I don't think that's the thing that changes it. Okay. Uh, you want to talk some actual comics news? Some things that Bef happen? Before we get to that, I did want to draw your attention, speaking of the release of Logan, mm -hmm. this film in the States also saw the release of a new trailer for Deadpool called No Good Deed. Did you oh, see that the, by any the, chance? The, the long, uh, the two-minute joke thing. It, it was funny. It was so funny. <laughs> I mean, uh, look, they... Just a quick description. So it's Ryan Reynolds' Deadpool. Here's the guy screaming for help. Runs to a phone booth and they start playing the Superman theme. And it takes him the entire length of the theme to take his clothes off, put his uniform on, and by the time he gets out, the guy's dead. It was such a Deadpool thing to do. I think... I like the Deadpool movie and I would like the second Deadpool movie because this is the proper amount of Deadpool like once per year and the problem with the comics for me as being for a long time that he's everywhere and he's annoyingly everywhere but so I don't read the Deadpool I stopped reading Deadpool comics a long time ago but once a year watching a movie for like an hour and a half two hours max I'm fine with that longer than that and mm -hmm. then And this joke was thin quickly. It's funny you should mention that, though, because I had a conversation with a reader who was too young to remember. You and I know this because we've been around for a while, but Deadpool was hardly the first character who was overexposed at Marvel. And in fact, I remember about five to ten years ago, it was Wolverine on every book, right? And it's I, I didn't hear you again. I'm saying I remember when uh, five years ago, ten years ago, the face that was on every single Marvel comic was Wolverine. And 20 years before that, Spider-Man. And uh, in between the two of them, the Punisher, yeah, who had like yeah. five titles at once at the time. 
Yeah, so that's why I tend to disconnect. Now, obviously, younger readers are not aware of that, right? Because they, if, if your reading experience goes back, say, five, six, seven years, so it has been Deadpool who's been overwhelmingly dominant in the comics. But I find myself not particularly harmed by that only because I remember that these things tend to happen in cycles. There was a time when I could not stand the, the look of Wolverine. I still, I'm still not a huge fan of his, but he was, ev- he was freaking everywhere. They used to make joke comics about the fact that he was on all three X-Books at the same time and you couldn't figure out the chronology because he was just on uh, all the, of them. the Jason Aaron two-parter, right? Where they show a week in the life of Wolverine and every, Single panel is him teaming up with another super team because he was in the yeah. X-Men teams and the Avengers and S.H.I.E.L.D. and free solo titles at the same time. Yeah. So these things tend to happen, right? I don't think it's... It, it doesn't damage my appreciation of Deadpool as a character in theory. I'm not reading any of his ongoing books right now because I'm not particularly fond of the creative teams. But for a Deadpool movie... Sure, I can be enthusiastic about that. <sighs> some comics news, some things some that happened. Things. Go for it. Uh, in between the recording of the last episode and its broadcast, Island has been cancelled. Issue 15 <laughs> is going to be the last one. And it's annoyance, but not surprise, because we've seen the sales figures. And unlike, say, something like Squirrel Girl... I don't think Island is one of those things that sold very well in a different non-direct market platform. It's not like you went to, I don't know, Mind Paz uh, shop and bought the Island uh, the Island comics straight behind the Archie Digest or something. Mm. I have a theory about this, and I want to share it with you, see what you think about it. I blame the cancellation of Island on Brandon Graham, and I'll tell you why. We have both appreciated Island for its artistic merit, these past 15 issues. You know, there have been high points, low points, whatever. Looking back on it now, I'm realizing that part of the problem, and this could have played into the low sales, was the fact that you had no freaking clue from issue to issue what was going to be the content. It wasn't just a question of whether these ongoing stories, you know, what was a one-shot, what was an ongoing, what was a two-parter, five-parter, whatever. It was that sometimes these stories would come out and then disappear. The first part of a story would come out and then five, six issues, nothing happens. I'll give you an example. In one of the early island titles, it was a story called Balst, right? Where uh, a guy saves a goblin girl yeah, yeah. and they're going kill all wizards, right? That was a great one shot. I, it was a fantastic. Did. Well, this is the question, isn't it? Right? It was mm-hmm. a fantastic introduction. You did not know reading the story if it was a one shot, if it was a prelude to something that would be printed elsewhere, which is also a viable tactic. That furry gay porn uh, thing that we talked about is part of a whole universe, apparently, that is online web comics or something, but which they, is fine. I did put a link to it. I, yeah. I would say, because Graham said it's not a bug, it's a feature when he started the series, that his point of it was, A, he wants to give room to new talent, and B, he wants them to produce the best they can do, and he said he doesn't care about, uh, not, not so much about the time they take. He said 
take the time you need to produce something, which is, again, it's great in theory, but you get why the sales are low. And if you're like me, you appreciate the stuff and you appreciate it enough to wait, but I can't blame, like you said yourself, when you're saying, I'm reading this thing and A, Island doesn't really come out on a monthly basis. At some point it became bi-monthly and then uh, once every three months or so for a while. And even when it does come out, you're not really sure what stories will be featured because even sometimes the solicitations were wrong. Yeah. I remember one issue promised the return of Multiply War at one of the, I think, issue 12 or 11 in the, the solicitations. And then the issue came out. I'm like, oh boy, I really like Multiply War. It's no Multiply Wards in the actual issue, something yeah. else entirely. And this so, is... Yeah, it's a problem because it, when you're trying to highbrow an avant-garde, not a lot of people's going to want it. It's, it's not about that. I, I honestly do not believe that it is about being highbrow or avant-garde. I think it's a problem of clarity. I think, in fact, that it's the same thing that sunk Eight House was the fact that people did not know what was coming out, what was relevant, how these things were connected. We're talking basic information here, right? We're not talking about the actual content. The content could have been great. It could have been mediocre. It could have been bad. But the problem was you would pick up an issue of Island and forgetting the fact that you didn't know when this story would come back, you didn't even know if this story would come back. No, there... no because I, I remember at least some of the stories in the title page, they had like, uh, they had like number one, so and so. So one of three, sure. Yeah, one first of three, of all, two of five, whatever. But that wasn't consistent, first of all, because there mm-hmm. would be times where it would come in and the story would end with to be continued and the title page would not say anything about that. And then, in fact, the story wouldn't come back. You remember when we were reading the serialized version of A Land Called Tarot, we got to the end and we weren't actually sure that it was the end. Yep. Because and this, I think, has been a consistent problem with the projects that Graham has tried to launch at Image. Not discounting profit for a second, because that pretty much ran as expected. But Island and Eight House both had this very real and inexplicable lack of communication, where Graham and the people that he were working with did not bother to ever tell people this is the new plan, right? When they started taking off the Eight House uh, logo, remember Arclight came out as it's, it ended up shifting into its own miniseries? Fantastic. Yes. First of all, they never said what would happen to the other issues. They never said what the transition from ongoing to miniseries, how that would affect Arclight, if we're supposed to read it in a particular way, is it going to continue? Anything like that. We We don't know. So much of this of both of these projects, both Eight House and Island, had the best of intentions, artistically speaking, but were utter failures when it came to telling your readers, okay, this is what you can expect for the next month, two months, three months. The solicitations for Island were useless. They would name writers, sometimes they'd be there, sometimes they wouldn't. They wouldn't tell you anything about the stories. Miranda, I don't think, actually ended. Firebug with Johnny Christmas, I don't know. Yeah, one part and then gone. Yeah. And was that intentional? Did it get cancelled? Nothing. No, I think think that was because he went to work with... uh... What's her face on uh, in Dark Horse on the graphic novel series? Uh, Margaret Ebb. He he's doing the art on Cat uh, Angel Cat something. Oh, Angel, Angel Capper. Capper. Yeah, Angel Capper. So he's doing the art on that. So obviously, when you offered, I guess that was a very high-paying gig. So he probably took it. 
Oh, undoubtedly. But again, that would have been nice to hear from Graham. If you were... In, in, not, not, you can hear it only if you're following him online. That's something that should be in the actual issue. Like, you have a fold, you have a double spread fold-out page with art in it, which is great and nice. And you have some great artists there, but provide some information. The first five issues were all really nicely laid out in terms of the, you had the title page that Graham actually drew on hmm. and explained what happened. And then at a certain point, he stopped doing it because he said he had other projects he needed to do to actually do artistically. And so the issue just came out and you were like, sometimes the title page will be at the end of the issue. Sometimes there won't be a title page. So you just read it and hope that you would find a proper story, which is not a good way to introduce an anthology. No, it really isn't. And it's a shame. And it's, again, it's such a shame that it died. I'm like, I'm, I'm heartbroken. It was one of my favorite comics for two years running now. And it introduced me to so many new talents. People I now follow religiously. And I, I want to know what's the new Ludrow project. I want to do to know what the new Will Kirkby project is. But damn it. It's, I don't think, I don't think better management would have saved it, saved it, but I would think it would give it a longer leash on life. I don't think we'd live to see the, they were something like Island in this, in the way the comic market works these days would crack 100 issues or even 50 issues. But I would have liked it to live to 30 at least. Yeah. I mean, again, most creative projects these days of this sort tend to be short-lived, but longer than 15 issues, right? It was very clear, I think, you know, for all that Graham went on Twitter and said, yeah, it's ending. We know it was canceled. Of course it was canceled. No, he said it was canceled. He said it, not enough readers, not enough money. The original, uh, well, no, the original announcement sort of danced around this. He said it was just ending. And it's like, no, you got canceled. Why did you get canceled? Because you cannot put forth an anthology and offer only your name as an editor as well, it's his and we're forgetting Emma... No, 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 I'm not forgetting Emma Rios. I'm, I'm saying, like, you cannot put... For, this applies to her as well. You cannot put your name on... Actually, it also reminds me of Heavy Metal right now. You can't put your name forth as editor-in-chief and draw attention that way and then not do anything to really push the people who are being featured in the, your actual anthology by way of making it clear to the readers, if you like Daggerproof Mummy, if you like Q by Dil Ranjaman, if you like that, there's that one story uh, about the woman who is in an accident and her husband goes off and like it's very clear that, that he's going off to die. Yes. Uh, Kate Craig, I think, was her name. Or in the last issues, there was there's this really, really heartbreaking story, uh, The Pervert. Yes, by Remy uh, there were several pervert strips, right? Yeah, I think two or three of them. They were great. <laughs> like, unexpectedly great. Yeah, fantastic stuff. But again, you didn't know issue to issue. First of all, in none of the solicitation texts is that story mentioned. Uh, like You would have to know the name of the author and then go issue to issue in the previous text to see if that author was listed for that particular issue of Island, which is a ridiculous way to gather information. It's so roundabout. Why could you not say, okay, for the next, you know, he could have ended a given issue of Island by saying, okay, for the next six issues, we are going to feature these stories and these authors. If you saw this one come, like he didn't do any, any of that. 
Now, part of it might be, as he said, he's busy with other projects, be they creator-owned or licensed. We don't know. But that's not, you know, that's not enough at the end of the day. That does end up putting you into a position of, well, you did not tend to this, so it died. I think, again, I think even if he would have tended to it with his maximum support, it would have died. It would just have died later. I think, because like I said, the first five issues were exactly what we wanted because they did present all of that information and the solicitation texts at the time were accurate and saying exactly what will come in and what will be next issue. And here are the stuff by the creators. He had, again, the title page and the epilogue page for every issue with explanations and articles and stuff like that. Yeah. But that didn't sell. The sales dropped like a stone after issue one. Remember, the first four issues were over 100 pages each. And then because they couldn't support it, they had to drop to like 80 pages. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm saying I it might that he hadn't done enough. But I'm thinking the way the comic market works nowadays, this model was such, you know, a project of goodwill and good intentions and not cynical and it died because it wasn't cynical enough. It literally died on its own goodwill. I don't know if I'd go that far, but fair enough. Uh, something came back. You know, we're talking <laughs> about something dying. And you were very sad last episode that uh, Jem was taken away from us. I was. Uh, all too soon. And apparently it's reviving from the grave at least part-time. So after the ongoing series is ending in May, one month later there's going to be two miniseries that are that will be like bi-weekly both Jam and Misfits new two new miniseries that will be it's together six issues or it's six issues each one you I know, don't remember you know I'm not sure I think, I think that it's six it's, issues in total yeah I think so that will be like an epilogue to Jam that will both uh, end the series and will take the characters to a new more fantastical more science fiction-y type of story which is an odd choice for uh, basically six issues epilogue. Yeah, it does. I mean, the the obvious fear, I think, was that they were worried that they were going to try and incorporate Gem and the Misfits into the existing IDW Well, you universe. say fear, I say excitement. I... That's just, I'm, still, I'm still holding out for G.I. Gem. I, I phoned IDW. <laughs> no, I said, if you, no. if you do that, and if Kelly Thompson doesn't want to do it, I'll, I'll do it for free. Oh my God, no. Oh, please, no, please don't. Um, but, yeah, so they instead decided that they were going to put out two... And also the structure is weird. Two three-issue miniseries, one for Gem and one for The Misfits, that are actually crossing over to tell one story. Why not just make it one miniseries that's six issues long? That is really... Well, it's, it's possibly going to be like two points of view of the same story. You could like still Ender do Ender and Ender's Shadow type thing. That's kind of weird, though. Well, it's weird, but it's not its not a bad structure if that's what you want to do. I mean, it's still uh, Kelly Thompson. I'm going to read it, but it, it is so, so weird that they're going full sci-fi and parallel worlds and all of that. I don't know. Maybe they're testing the waters. Maybe it's not... If this thing's successful, she will return for more gem of that type. Mm, the impression that I got from what she's been saying about it is that she's ready to move on. And I don't know if this was... I don't know what the sales were. For Jam, uh, sales monthly on Jam wasn't that great. It it Com- was I think at what, the low though? end of the IW Hasbro Versh type properties. That's disappointing. Which is yeah, it's 
uh, I, I think it's one of those things that might sell better in different channels. This might be one of those series that makes most of its money in Comixology. I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised. Comixology doesn't really sell, so I don't know. Yeah. It could be a Squirrel Girl case because, you know, Squirrel Girl sells awfully in the direct market, but it's going on for over two years now, so somebody buys it. Yeah, I guess it's the difference between if the book is being cancelled because of low sales, that explains why the miniseries is happening. If it's ending because Kelly Thompson wants to move on. Yeah, three years, you know. Then I, I guess, I don't know. I haven't, I, I've been enjoying it so far. It has gotten a little, it's, it's been interesting. They've been doing creative decisions that I would not have necessarily predicted. Mm-hmm. Which, for better or worse, right? There are good ways to see that and bad ways to see it. But I, I have been enjoying it. I'll, I'll miss it uh, when it's gone. I do, again, the sales thing I just want to mention. Uh, because I don't know if you follow the beat, the comic beat. The, eh, on they, occasion. They, they just published before we record, the day before we recorded Brian Hibbs' uh, full analysis of the book scan sales for 2016. He's been doing the sales for comic book titles through via Bookscan, which is a network that holds like 7,500 stores in the U.S. alone. Mm. And he's tracking sales and trends for 15 years now, which is a very impressive work. Okay. And the best-selling comic book title, the best-selling comic book writer overall in 2016 is Reina Telegmeier. She takes four yeah. of the first 10 spots yeah, we in, know that. In, 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 in book sales. No, but... Again, four, including for a book that came out in the last two months of the year. So with only two months of sale, she's overtaking everything and anything. The only actual thing that we would think of as mainstream comic in that list, in the top ten, is The Killing Joke. And that's because, well, they had the animated movie coming out and people bought a lot of copies because of that. It was always a high seller, but it jumped like twice its regular price. So again, maybe the gem trade sells superbly well not in stores but in like book markets and and kids libraries and stuff like that i don't think so it's not again it's not that type of story it's more like a teenage roman story rather than a children's book right mm-hmm. but i don't know maybe you know Hard to i say. hope because they just des- they deserve it they certainly deserve it well they do. I just uh, maybe it's the the sort of mainstream companies publishing it that's turning off, say, Telgemeier's readers, right? Because they her work gets published through Scholastic, yeah, which is a completely different audience than IDW, even Image. You know, we're talking about companies that are in the mainstream. Scholastic are are somewhere else entirely. Well, they're actually, they actually are more mainstream than Marvel and DC, right? We think of sure. them as secondary comic market, but they actually are the biggest dogs in the, in the neighborhood. They are, but partly because that's not their, they're not primarily known for graphic novels. Scholastic, uh, to the best of my knowledge, their books are, it's an imprint, right? The deals yeah, but stuff the like fact bone. is, they, they can be not directly doing just that and still beating up the competition that's doing only that. Sure. And I think recently with Marvel, with, again, stuff like Squirrel Girl and AKA Hellcat and uh, the new Wasp book and the new Hawkeye book, they're trying to break into that market because the actual, their direct comic book sales in the US at least 
that's the only thing that we know of, are dropping like a stone. Well, Hellcat was cancelled, so clearly if that's the technique they're using, it's not working. Well, it's cancelled, but they had like, what, 12, 18 issues out? So if they manage to produce three trades of that, and those trades sell well, even like a tenth of a Reina Telegmeyer book, one tenth of something like the Dork Diaries, which I can tell you, as, as someone who works in a bookstore in Israel, is selling like hotcakes. Hmm. Uh, when people are hungry, not just generally in <laughs> hotcakes in a bookstore. Um, if they can do, if they can produce even one fourth of that, they'd be happy. Maybe right now Marvel is opening is opening up to a whole brand new market and succeeding. We don't know. No, we looking, do know. Looking at the direct sales right now, no, no, hang it on. seems terrible. And I assume that if they were selling that well in in for children, they would you know trump it up and they will be like news report Marvel graphic novel. Sells one million copies outside of your local comic book store. Exactly. That's why I don't believe that they're mm-hmm. succeeding or that they're even trying to appeal to a different market. I think they want to. They just don't know how. Because first of all, you're right. If this were the case, if these books were selling in massive quantities elsewhere, first of all, Marvel would know about it. The fact that Comixology does not put out uh, sales reports would not prevent Marvel from putting out a press release self-congratulating themselves for, oh, look at how well we're doing elsewhere. They did that with the Marvel Age books, remember? When Spider-Girl and Spider-Man Adventures and Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane, when those books were coming out, Marvel took every opportunity to remind everyone, look at how much people love these books. But the fact that they're canceling Hellcat and they're canceling all of these other books that are low sales in the direct market, regardless of how well they may be doing elsewhere tells me that they're not interested. It's well, not except like... Squirrel Girl, which actually is continuing and even got a graphic novel Squirrel this Girl last year. is continuing, but Squirrel Girl yeah. is an anomaly. Hellcat has been cancelled, Silk has been cancelled, Ms. Marvel has not been cancelled yet. Neither has Moon Girl, right? So it doesn't seem like there's some kind of system here. It seems that they're just throwing things at the wall and hoping something will stick. There cannot be a plan because no plan could be executed this messily and hope for success. Mm. Speaking of all of those titles, have you read have you read America number one? I have. Are we getting into the comics? I, I think it's yeah. a nice way to cross over into talking about comics. There sure. have been, by the way, a lot of number ones in the over the past two weeks. It's crazy. Yeah. Just looking at a list of you know again. <laughs> There's been America and Brave Chef Brianna and Extremity and Grass Kings and Dreadline and Royal City and Savage Things and the Once and Future Queen and and stuff that I care about. But Sean, you know, look at like there's been Animal Noir and America America Karate. Yeah, but that was actually part of the reason we agreed to try the new format for this uh, episode is really because for some bizarre reason. There were a lot of notable number ones coming out this week. And uh, now, the thing about America, America Vasquez. No, sorry, America Chavez. Vasquez is the other one that's going to be coming out from Image. That's not going to be confusing at all. I, I think I think they've, Joe Casey decided to stop doing that because there haven't been any further announcements since then. That's and true. I, I, and I think it's a smart decision by him. He created this version of America... Uh, the Marvel character in his Vengeance miniseries, but as far as most people are concerned, the, the, the vision they prefer is the one that was in the Gillen McKelvey Young Avengers. And I don't think they're interested in seeing 
his take on it. And he'll, you know, he has enough projects right now. He doesn't need to do that. He can wait for Marvel to cancel their America in issue seven. <laughs> After three crossovers. I'm sorry. After three and crossovers. It's not, and it's not because I didn't like it. It's because it's Marvel. But well, I, did, I didn't like it. I wanted to like it. I really didn't like it. There, so I'm going to tell you a bit of a small story, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, at the last uh, big academic conference that I was at, I met a very well-renowned professor named Frederic Luis Aldama, who's very, very interested in representations of Latina characters and comics. He's written, recently published a short story collection about that deals with uh, Latino perspectives in America, etc., and he posted, you know, we're, we're friends on Facebook and he posted an article talking about how great it is that America Chavez, who's this very prominent Latina superhero, who's also queer. And, you know, she has this central position now. She's the head of her own book. And I didn't respond to that, but I wanted to say, could, could we not have hoped for better? Because America number one has an issue with its writing that I've been noticing more and more often with Marvel specifically. DC doesn't seem to have this problem yet, but Marvel more and more, it's like the tone of the writing. This is going to sound awful what I'm about to say, but it's like they're writing comics for people with ADD. Because I read it and it jumps around and there's no sense of flow, no sense of consistency, no pace. Everything is a mess. I had, I got to the end of the issue. And again, this is a character who I, you know, Gillen wrote this way. This is how he wrote Young Avengers, where every single issue, nothing made sense. Everything was broken up. The characters didn't have any kind of, of, they felt like these machines who were spitting out punchlines. Loki talking okay, about I, I disagree about Gillen, but I do agree about this issue. It has a very start-stop method because they're trying to move her into a new status quo, both in emotional terms and in physical terms, because the point of it is she's going to a new academy for superheroes. Mm-hmm. And they sort of have to explain why she's no longer within story with the Ultimates, was it? I, or the new Avengers. I can't no, remember. The, no, no, the and young why Avengers. Why she leaves her current girlfriend? And you can just you can just start the book and saying America America was a member of this super team, but now she's trying something new, and just start there. But they're spending like three quarters of the issue moving her around, and then at the last fourth, and a very nonsensical scientific mumbo jumbo experiment. It's very much a techno babble thing. Yeah, and I wonder. I, as far as I know, uh, the writer, Gabby Riviera, she's a young adult writer of actual novels, including one that won plenty of some awards. Mm. But maybe it's the thing of it's her first time writing uh, mainstream comics and she's not used to the pacing of it yet. It could and be. And it feels like look, something that's... In, it's the introduction to a novel rather than the, even chapter one. But, you know, that's, that's sort of... It's an excuse... But it doesn't help me as a reader who Marvel asked me to pay them their ridiculous number, one amount, and then, you know, $4 every month later. Exactly. You know, so, it, it feels 
On the one hand, it feels so unfortunately dismissive to say the fact that she is, as the letter pages call her, right? She's a star portal punching, girl loving Latina babe on the verge of self discovery who's also about to get a major boost in powers. All well and good. It's still a $5, $4, whatever issue on a monthly basis coming from Marvel, who you have no reason to trust will treat this properly. And right? is she? Because her previous version was a star portal punching, uh, you know, a very much a firebrand type of character. This one seems to... I, again, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to say it. It seems like a lot of the recent Marvel launches have this odd tendency of pluckization, like making all the characters, fem- young female characters very plucky. Which isn't like, necessarily a bad thing. Because it's not well, something it's, that it's they not had. a bad thing if you do it like one or two, but when you start you start reading a story about America and you're thinking, wow, it's very much like the recent Wasp series. Um, those are supposed to be two completely different characters, mm. and, and it's, no, you're right. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's a slow slow change that happened in her team book. I don't know. No. I just think of the Gillen version. So no, no. The, but the Gillen the thing about the Gillen version is that she was more or less written like this. No, no, she was written like, she was angry, and she threatened people, and she broke, you know, she broke faces and buildings without caring. She, she was, she, she always said what she found, and she, and she never had in that series up until the end an emotional crisis, because if somebody tried to do the, you know, oh, we're having team drama thing, she would just, I don't care, I will punch you, now be a professional superhero. And this version, you know, her girlfriend leaves her and she starts crying. Yeah, it's... Um... Uh, it's, it's odd to me that the most interesting female lead in Marvel right now for me is Gwenpool, of all characters, because she's not like that. Yeah. No, I think you're right. There is... There do appear to be... And I wonder... I'm wondering if maybe this started with Kamala Khan. And that this is another case of people not understanding why a character catches on. When Kamala Khan did it initially, when she was presented as this very chirpy, very happy, quipping, you know, just this this fun character, this breath of fresh air, it came in at a time where Marvel were not known for that. And lately it does seem that a lot of their new characters are conforming to a very, very, very specific character type. And that that's not necessarily a bad thing precisely because it's not like Marvel were swimming in plucky, positive female role models beforehand. They weren't. But the fact that they're all happening within a space of a year or two or however long it's been since this has started, it does speak to a certain lack of, ironically, right? It speaks to a certain lack of diversity in types of characters. And, you know, some I've read some good reviews. People who've read it do seem to like it. So good on them. And I agree, it's important, right? It's important that we have this type of character written by people like Joe Quinones and Gabby Riviera. And it's no longer just white guys writing their yes. view of minority characters. We're still getting, but, but being, but yeah, but it's not, but it's not, not in that issue. So it's important, but for me, being important doesn't make it good. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I appreciate what it is. It's definitely not for me. Yeah, I can see the historical importance. As Rivera writes it, it doesn't interest me. I might, I am still going to try the first arc 
When it's out in trade, I'm going to give it another chance and keep an open mind. But this issue didn't do anything for me to the point where I was like, A, I want to know more about America. B, oh my God, she's been sent back to World War II. Come on. I mean, we're already dealing with a time-traveling story about World War II over in uh, Nick Spencer's Captain America. So what? Oh, you're reading that? Why? No, hell no, I'm not reading that. But that's obviously what's been going on. The whole thing where where Cap is a secret uh, Hydra plant or whatever. It's down to time traveling. Uh, I couldn't care less. Yeah, but I'm just saying, you know, to the point where if not only are you repeating character types, you're repeating plots that are already ongoing. So, eh. Mm-hmm. Uh, Image has released two very different number two very big very different number ones the week before that right both Extremity and Royal City sure you've plus... read either of them both of them I've read them both. both I read them both and I read them both and I like them both so okay g- good on Image uh, well I'll say this much um, I enjoyed Royal City much much more because When it first started and you were describing it to me in chat, we were talking about it and the way that you were talking about it made me think, you know, that sounds a lot like Essex County, that he's doing some kind of grounded family drama in the middle of nowhere. And I was like, it took me a second. I thought about it and it's like, you know, I remember really, really enjoying Essex County. Mm. So if Lemire wanted to go back to that, I would not object. There's a twist in this issue and it's a hell of a twist. Really, really interesting. So that was the point where I was like, you know what? I'm on board. I I was on board from page one. I really like... It's one of those 50 page number one, so he can take his time with the twist. Mm-hmm. And I, I, wasn't, I don't think it's a super great... It's not like the end of uh, issue one of, say, uh, Birthright twist. It's not... It's not one of those. It's not, oh, it changes everything. It's it's an, more of an emotional twist to the presentation of the characters. Yeah, you don't know what it means. Is the it's, thing. it's not like, again, it is still, I think, appears to be very much a grounded series. It's not like the twist is, oh, and they're all, and they're all on an alien experimental lab in a Twilight Zone type thing. It's not that. Yeah. Now, Extremity, I was less happy with, to be completely okay, no, honest. No, 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 but since we were talking about Royal City... Oh, okay. Uh, like I said, no, because I really like the pacing of it, and I really... It's one of the things where his art really suits the style, which very kind of relaxed. And you can see there's only like usually four or five panels per page. And they're all like big. He doesn't try to overdo himself. They're all like big, stable panels of here are the mm-hmm. characters. And they're always well established within those backgrounds. And in many ways, the backgrounds are more detailed than the characters he draws. Mm-hmm. I, I would say this. Because it's trying to be one of those, the comic book, the ongoing comic book version of something like a Jonathan Franzen novel, where it's like, it's the story of an American family, and therefore America itself, and it's the big American novel in comic form. One thing I thought is, boy, I sure do miss thought bubbles and caption and more caption boxes. Mm. Because one of the things that makes those type of novels work, those Jonathan Franzen-esque novels, is that often you are within the head of the characters. And because we're in 2017 and those things are no longer fashionable, because stupid reasons mostly, uh, we sort of have scenes where character are, characters are expressing what they should be thinking, I think. Like, oh, we haven't met for such a long time. Our family drama is terrible. And they're saying it to one another. And I don't, it's not bad. It's not, it's, it's a very good comic, but it, 
feels to me that if circumstances have been different, Lemire would have felt more comfortable using a more varied toolbox. And it's just, it made me think how sad I am that so many of the things that have been developed in the craft of comics are now shot off as being unfashionable and uncool ever since Watchmen before Vendetta, right? Which said, well, we can do a story without those. And again, people mistakenly thought, well, because they did it without those, now we can't use them either. Well, I think the main difference is that Royal City, I kind of disagree with the idea that it's about... You know, America, the heartland, life in the big city, because there is some kind of larger twist here, right? That last page reveal. So there's something else going on here besides if it were Essex County was that, right? Essex County was all about the lives of these middle to low class people who were living in the American heartland in the that city. That was Canada. Was it? Essex County was it was the great Canadian novel, a word not often used. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, it felt felt American as hell, though. But regardless. I remember it being Canada. Maybe I'm wrong. It's been well, such a long time. Essex County is in all of our hearts, no matter where we are. See, but we, no, no, Ontario. <laughs> it took place in Ontario. Okay, fair enough. But yeah, so that was a very grounded look at things. Here, from the start, you already know that there's something else going on. So in that sense, I think. It doesn't have to have, you know, more of that interiority because it's not necessarily these, the, the family are not the interesting thing about the story. The hook here is the, the mystery, right? What is going on with Tommy? What's the deal with him? That I think is where the real interest is. It depends though on, on where he's going to take it. You never know with Lamar. He could zig when we think he's going to zag. I, th- I think it's, I think it's, more gonna be a character piece rather than uh, rather than a big mystery thing. I, I think it's just the background and the mood. Mm. Uh, like, I, like I said when we chatted before before the show online that it's such a either he worked he reworked it or it's such an odd coincidence because there a large subplot of the issue is you have this lady who wants to take the town that they're all living and the, the the point being that they're like the leading family of this small town. And she wants, she wants to take the town forward by demolishing the old factory, which is bleeding money right now, and replacing it with a golf course. And her husband who works in the, go- in, in the factory is so angry that, you know, it's his job and now there she and now you will make more money than me. Mm. Which is pretty much, like I said, it's America 2017. It's an old angry white guy saying, you can't change things. Even if I see that the changes for the best and that the current situation cannot continue forever, I'm angry. The, the very idea that you will lead our lives, that you will make more money for, than me, makes me angry as hell. Mm. That's such a prescient moment. I, and I don't know if he planned it or it's just, well, like good fortune. Terrible fortune for the world, good fortune for his creative uh, impulses. Yeah, that's true. We'll see where it goes. I'm, I'm interested in it. Uh, I'm staying. I'm definitely staying. Yeah. And it has a SoundCloud. Uh, have you have you heard the soundtrack? No. Uh, I'm not a SoundCloud guy, but there is at the end of the issue, there's a, a direct link for a playlist that he set up on SoundCloud for every issue. He said. <laughs> I usually don't pay attention to that yeah, stuff. There, it's, it's become semi-popular over the last couple of years. Uh, the, uh, the humans also did that. And Lumberjane for the first year... And uh, Tran- the Transformers Morton Meets the Eye series still does that. Yeah. 
Uh, so extremity. What, extremity. I I have a feeling that you like this a lot more than I did. Oh, oh I, when I read it, I said I was going to like it a lot more than Sean did. That's a Daniel Warren Johnson. <laughs> uh, he writes and draws with colors by Mike Spicer. I'm saying it because even if you don't like the writing, you will remember the name Daniel Warren Johnson because the art is amazing. Mm-hmm. The art is beautiful. And it's basically... It's Mad Max, only they're in the air for most of the time instead of on the ground. Yeah. Like I said, in general plot terms, it's not that amazing. It's the post-apocalypse, and we have this family that leads a tribe called uh, the Rolos, something like that? Something like that, yeah. Something like that, and years ago, their home castle has been taken over by a different tribe, and our heroine, our protagonist, is the daughter of the chief, and she lost her hand. In the in that attack, and the hand is what defined her up until now because she was an artist. She drew, and now she can lo- no longer draw. And so, when the day that comes back to take the castle, it's up to her and her brother, the heir to the throne, to lead the attack. And mm-hmm. well, the you kind of know what happens when you're introduced to their two character types. Yeah, but this is all about for me the expression of the story rather than the actual story itself. It's called Extremity. And it is a book of extremes. Uh, the The scene where you see her lose her hand in a flashback, how easy would it have been to, you know, to have the bad guy wield like a knife or a machete or something? Mm-hmm. But instead you have this super ridiculous dinosaur claw type, uh, dinosaur jaw type thing that closes on her hand. Yeah. Which for me, it's amazing. It's, it's why I love the Mad Max movie because it felt like such a pure expression of life where everything is taking up top and too much. Hmm. I think my problem with it more had to do with the structure of the story because, you know, Thea, the the main character, who seems to be the main character, right? She's had her hand cut off. She's out for revenge. She gets her revenge by the end of the first issue. And at that point, it wasn't clear to me what the story was about. Like, the fact that they're in this post-apocalyptic world with floating castles for some reason there doesn't seem to be magic in the setting but it's just sort of accepted that this is this floating island or whatever and they go and they attack this castle and they kill the guy who cut off her hand and she cuts off his hands in who played the fiddle while they cut off her hand right right but who is clearly the leader of that faction mm-hmm. and and she gets her revenge right she she basically completes her arc if you want to see it that way so that raises the question is, okay, having established that, what is this story actually about? Well, it seems to be the story in general terms of what will happen to their tribe next, because the guy who was supposed to be there to the throne was proven to be not manly enough. Who cares, and, though? Is, well, that, is that really a selling point? Because the tribe is not... It, if Johnson had made more of an effort to characterize anyone besides you have the father, you have the brother, and you have Thea... Right? These yes. are the three characters. So from that, why should... And the father is stepping down. This whole process was initiated by him saying the son is supposed to replace him at some point. Why... But he can't. Well, now... Right. The plot argues that he can't ultimately. But that in itself, as a reflection of something bad's going to happen to the tribe, I'm not... I'm not convinced that the tribe is that interesting or unique or that there's any reason to hope for their success i i I really found them interesting mostly because when you look at the presentation 
they are it's it's like Mad Max except they're the bad guys in every other term like they have the big tribal leader who is who dressed like uh what's his face from Mad Max Fury Road not the hero the bad guy the, you know he has this weird skull mask on and when yeah. they go to attack they all have this tribal chanting so it seems like we get the hero story and the up and right story but from the point of view of people who are in most other stories would be the bad guys simply because they're so uh, violent and there's no apology for their violence they're like yeah we'll kill everybody we'll slaughter them all and we'll have fun doing it uh, I don't know and if to I me buy that's that. So, that to me that's so interesting see I don't know if I buy that only because what villainous actions I mean look in a Mad Max film regardless of how characters dress you can usually tell when a faction is evil you can usually tell when they're the villains because of their actions not just the way that they look Furiosa doesn't look like some blonde heroine out of a romance novel right she looks like mm-hmm. one of them so It's not necessarily in the visual design, it's in what they do. And looking at this tribe, the only thing that they really do in the context of the story is that they get revenge on the people who attack them. And you don't even know if they were the aggressors or whatever. It's, it's completely unclear. So I don't, I don't know that I would call them the villain in any other story. No, 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 no. I'm not saying villain. I'm saying villainesque. How so? Um, in terms of presentation. And it's interesting to me to introduce a world that is, again... All, everything about it is so extreme that there really is a very slim line between good guys and bad guys if even if there is there's just there's the brutal and there's the more brutal mm. and I think if it only being in the story it wouldn't have worked but because the art is so spectacularly within the moment and it's one of the best one of the best flowing for me in in issue numbers ones of recent weeks in terms of just how things go on. Across the page and then from page to page it's very much you know I want to turn it I want to see what happens next and the way that you know a single page of action then turns into a page of giant spread of gore mm-hmm. it's just an amazing work for me of craft and character and I get I get why you don't like it I totally get it for me it's one of the best we had so far in the year and I think I'm staying with that series like all the okay. way to the end baby fair enough uh, speaking of books I didn't like. Did okay. you read Cosmic Scoundrels number one? I have. I'm, oh, my I'm God. I'm surprised you didn't like it. I, I, I didn't very oh. much enjoy it. I thought you would, you would have liked it more. No. So this is a five-issue miniseries from IDW by Matt Chapman and Andy Suriano. And it was an absolute mess. The art is sloppy, visually incoherent. Right? I had no idea what was happening. It's not... I'm not saying that like, okay, it was just like smears of color on a page. Not that bad, but not too far off. Um, it is a very busy series. Yeah. Very cluttered and very hard to make sense of what's happening in terms of action from panel to panel. And then the characters, uh, Rochambeau and what's the other one called? I Love know. Savage. Love Savage. Are some of the most I, I thought love sausage at first <laughs> that would also have been appropriate lo, lo, love sausage is a lot better name than love savage and it's odd because it's not it's, very good but it comes for such high prestige no. because Andy Soritano is a great artist he's mostly known as an animator he did a lot of work on stuff like Samurai Jack but he also did the Samurai Jack comic which was a very good looking comic and he did a graphic novel with Joe Casey called Doc Bizarre which is Beautiful work. And Matt Chapman writes for some of the best kids TV right now, right? He writes for Gravity Falls. Mm. 
Well, he used to write for Gravity Falls. Well, yeah, and he's one of the brother chaps who created uh, uh, what's what's called Homestar Runner. I think I don't know. We're, we're going into territory that I'm not familiar <laughs> with. It's it's one of those very it's one of those early internet flash cartoons which was so popular in the end of the '90s and the early 2000s. Like it spawned a mini empire mm. for them. Well, the problem is that I don't. I haven't seen any of those. Like, I have Gravity Falls queued up, and, and I will get to it eventually. My impression, though, is that, I mean, in terms of Cosmic Scoundrel specifically, I found the characters so obnoxious, just annoying as hell. I could not imagine sticking around for five issues of their adventures. Oh, my God. It was just, ugh. I actually, I actually like the art in terms of design choices, but like you said... It is a bit too cluttered. There's this scene, they sneak aboard a spaceship, they're trying to steal the cargo, and they're dressed as, uh, uh, what's it called? Cleaners? Yeah, like cleaners. Jan- janitors. And, and janitors, and their fall is that there are no janitors on that spaceship, which is a kind of a funny gag. But they jump out of their janitor uniforms and reveal their like battle uniforms, but the panel where they change uniforms is very unclear. It's just... Transition, you know, one one second they're dressed in full yellow body jumpsuits, and then the next they're uh, in fighting uniforms, and one of them shoots lasers from his hands, and the other doesn't. Like, is it the glove? Is it one? Is it? Is, does he have superpowers? But you know what annoyed me the most? Do tell. The joke at the bottom of every page, the blue. Oh, those uh, were panel. jokes. Ma- yes. <laughs> oh, oh, no, okay. no. See, it, it's and it's not that you, it's not that the jokes are bad. It's just it pulls your eye away from the action. It makes reading so hard. And one or two throughout the issue would have been fine. Doing them on every single page is annoying, and it makes me reappreciate what they're doing in Squirrel Girl, where they're beneath the page and in a very faded coloring, so you have to want to read them to see them. Because here it's just, it's distracting. You're like reading the page and you're trying to move on to the next page, but your your eyes get stuck on this block of text right where you're supposed to turn the page over, mm. which is a very bad way to advance the plot. Yeah. I, I don't think it's terrible. I just, I don't think it's very good though. No, not something that I, I would go out of my way to read. It's, it's, it's like okay minus kind of thing. What else have you uh, read this week? I've read uh, Redline number one. It's a new Oni series, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's pretty it's pretty good. The best thing about it is the art, though, uh, because it's this guy who I've never heard of before. I think he was recruited like uh, our beloved uh, Barnaby Beganda straight from Deviant Art. Mm-hmm. It's called uh, let's see, full name uh, Clayton Clay uh, McCormack, and he does some. Beautiful, beautiful work here. It's a science fiction, like semi-hard science fiction story. Uh, humans have colonized Mars. There is an alien race there. But it's all very like low stakes. And there's the local corporation is still trying to monopolize like the weather conditions. And there's like mini civil war between the humans and the alien and the alien saboteurs. And our main characters are a bunch of soldiers who are accompanying one of the heads of the local heads of the corporation and investigating a bombing raid. So it is very much imagine if Omega Man met Sheriff of Babylon in terms of presentation. Mm. And, and it's, you know, story-wise, it's pretty good. I would say 
that the problem is that he basically has this amazing artist, like really some lovely shots here and very well told storytelling, but he just sticks him in like a flatland desert and has the characters speak over a bunch of rocks a lot. Yeah. Which is like, let him do more. You, you have this amazing guy who I think would be a superstar by the end of that series. Even if you don't read it, you will look at it and say, I want to see what he does next. Um, and you just let him do people talk and people talk and people talk. But there are some there are some very amusing scenes, uh, which I won't spoil because I think I think you would actually really like it. Mm. There's like an amazing scene of a guy trying to take a dump and being surprised and getting up while with his pants still down and holding a gun, which like really nice comedic timing. <laughs> Uh, I might look into it when the first arc is out. We'll see how it goes. Mm. Anything else you've read? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I have a couple of number ones here. So mm-hmm. I read Brave Chef Brianna, number one. Oh, yeah. This is a four-issue boom miniseries by Sam Sykes, Selena Spiritu, and Sarah Stern, another novelist, Sam Sykes. Uh, I have to say, and this sort of goes back to what we were talking about with America, I can see how this would be perceived as formulaic. The story is that Brianna is a chef with self-esteem issues as so many boom protagonists tend to have. And They're all chefs with self-esteem problems. Well, that too. No, hang on. Space <laughs> lunchtime was not boom. It was... Uh... No, no, I'm saying you, oh. you wanted to make a point oh, about okay. self-esteem. <laughs> okay, thing I and, see. I, and I stuck in, yes, all of boom protagonists are notionally chefs they might be you don't know you, you could have like a whole imprint of boom books just for chef heroines but um so her her dying father issues this challenge to the family where he says okay whoever opens the most successful restaurant will inherit his entire cooking empire and brianna decides to go all out and she moves to here's the twist monster city a city that's populated entirely by monsters who don't eat human food which she doesn't know until she opens the restaurant. It seems like, okay, it's one of those things where, yeah, I get what they're playing with where she's over her head a bit, but it's too much. Like, there's this whole monster city, which is both separate and part of human civilization. It's not like a twist. She knows she's going there, and she knows that what monsters are, mm. and she knows that monsters apparently don't like humans that much. She doesn't know until the minute... She opens a restaurant that monsters aren't allowed by the decree of the elders to eat human food. Right. I thought that was very interesting. Now, going back to that thing of, you know, the pattern. Brianna isn't that different in terms of how Sykes presents her personality from any of boom heroines that we've seen going all the way back to the Midas flesh and even beforehand. The Lumberjanes, right? The Lumberjanes, uh, we've seen it in... To some extent, we see it in Giant Days too. even though Giant Days predates uh, the, What was the name one? Diesel. Tyler Sweet's Diesel, right? Uh, Diesel, yeah, you know, that I suppose that could qualify as well. So this happens a lot with Boom series where they have these uh, girls who have self-esteem issues and they work through it because they have a very particular skill that helps them. Now... This is, I think, the difference between how I reacted to that in a boom book versus how I reacted to that in a Marvel book. Here, I like the concept enough and it's fun enough that the lack of differentiation and the fact that there's not really anything super groundbreaking at this point 
doesn't bother me. There's also the fact that this is a four-issue miniseries, right? It's done in one. It's one trade. It's not that big a deal. When Marvel do it, you do get a stronger feeling of this being something that is calculated and mandated from higher up. I I would say this. Uh, I might come back for the trade of it, mm-hmm. but the world building, and I'm not, I'm not expecting Tolkien here, but it is so oddly haphazard to how these things work because nobody nobody in the Monster City wants to eat human food until she opens a restaurant. Then they post online that they eat human food. It's like, oh, apparently it's okay. It's the elder's law, but nobody cares about posting it online. It's not... If they would present it as if she opened this thing, it's like a joint, like this hidden place that you have to go into a cavern and hide away from the authorities to eat this forbidden treat of human food. Yeah. But they present it as if it's totally mainstream, which is doesn't work with the way they introduce the, the very concept of monsters eating human food and interacting with humans in the previous 16 pages. Well, it's not exactly that. My impression was, and this was not clear in the story, you're right, Sykes could have made this clearer. What I thought was that she was baking, after they reject her sandwiches and like the human food, she bakes monster food using her recipes. So when well, she gives them... like human ingredients, right? No, no. She gives them burgers at the end, but one of them says she didn't cook the meat because one of the taboos is monsters are not allowed to eat cooked meat. So and that's really unclear, Then uh, My assumption yeah. was that she just gave them regular human food and no, they're I, like, oh, I like it. No, because one of the characters does say, you know, the, the meat is raw, which is acceptable mm-hmm. for monsters. There's a bag of like gluten-free flour in her mm-hmm. kitchen. So I figured she made the, the hamburger buns from gluten-free flour and therefore it's not bread. So what makes the monsters like kosher food? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Which which is one way to go about it, uh, right? If Jews are monsters, Sean. We are, uh, as, as, like, as you know, we're we're all monsters. Yeah. Um, have you read the the actual uh, what, what what's it called? The actual dish they have at the end of the issue because they have uh, yeah. There's a recipe at the end. I'm yeah. assuming it's genuine. I'm not good enough in the kitchen no, no, no. to try Brazilian cheese waffle breakfast sandwich. <laughs> it's very much it's very much manga-esque because as you know because manga is so popular in, in Japan they can branch out to like very small fields so you have a whole series of manga for a different type of cooking so you can have a whole manga whose heroine heroine is, do, is like a bread worker and the whole manga about making wine and they always end the uh, little trades of them with recipes of here's what they made in this story arc you can make it too Mm. so it is very much like that and like i said in terms of odd storytelling and how the world kind of works if you squint at it hard enough it is also very much manga-esque not in terms of art and actual how the story works but in terms of the build-up of the world of it and the way they try to build up readers yeah i'm sticking around it seems to me like one of those things that will if successful enough get further uh, further issues. I think Boom hopes this will survive more than four. Well, the way that it's constructed, I, I would prefer almost for it to be a one-shot, as it were. You know, mm. one... Because I think very often when these books go on for too long, that's the point where the lack of diversity starts to get to you. Like, for example, I'm reading Backstagers and I'm enjoying it a lot, but... 
I don't know that I would want this to be a 50-issue series like Lumberjanes is heading towards, right? Because at some point, the similarities are not just something you can brush aside. It's fine for me now if I'm saying, okay, this is a four-issue mini. If the story holds up, it doesn't really matter to me that Brianna is, in terms of her personality, in terms of how she's written, she's kind of identical to, what was the name of that... um there was the Boom miniseries about the fish and the baker and the girl and the guy who get, like, the magical girl powers. Power Up? Power Up. Kate Leth, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. She's kind of like the protagonist there. And it's like, oh, okay, fine, I get it. I understand the principle behind it. It's fine. But I would like a more... If this ends up being ongoing, you'd have to do better than that. For a mini, you can slide it under the table. It's not the end of the world. And I'll just end up with another number one. There's been so many. I have uh, one more. That I, I haven't even talked to you about reading because I know you wouldn't like it. It's called Animal Noir. Uh-huh. It's about animals in noir setting. Sean, you hate anthropomorphized animals. I know. No, that, I don't. So. I like. When, whenever we talk about you, when we talked about the humans and blacks, and you were always like, or or you saggy or Jimbo, you were. What's the point? Why aren't they just human? Yeah, but then you get stuff like Wild's End, where it actually does make sense, and I like Zootopia. You know, okay. yeah. Uh, so it is, as, as the name implies, it's a mystery story. Okay, I think it's a translation of a foreign thing. It's written by and drawn by guys who are from Serbia, if I'm not mistaken. These are Lunacek and Najek Juren. Juren, G-J-U-R-E-N. It's interesting how European feels in presentation in terms of, it feels like something that could have been part of an album, like a Tintin because you actually take time to read the story. It's like there are lots of panels and lots of words in those panels, and it's all very much like the nine-panel and eight-panel grid of, of it, over it. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and it's very cartoonish in style, but it doesn't mean that the, presenta- the actual story isn't like aimed for adults, because you have like porn movies and drug deals and, uh, you know, uh, slavery, and pe- people mentioning like slaving and selling and selling uh, female females throughout the story which is a very european thing of yeah we'll draw it cartoonishly but people still gonna talk about murder and death and drugs like it's the most common thing ever so it, if you like zootopia and you thought i wanted to be uh r-rated if you want R-rated oh zootopia, god <laughs> oh no uh it's the thing for you and i i think uh, i'll wait for the trade probably but it is something that I'm interested in, and it is going to sit well on the shelf next to your uh, Black Seds mm-hmm. and your Grandvilles and your D- District 14s. Animals, animal PIs is a very specific, very good subgenre. Mm-hmm. There, there's like a half a dozen of these running around in different companies and venues, and I like them all. I don't know why. I don't know why it always <laughs> works for me. And our main hero is a giraffe PI, which is different. They have a lot of nice like visual gags with the fact that he his head is always above the frame for all the characters he's trying to investigate. Mm-hmm. And he just looks ridiculous. Because he has he has a full body suit and the hat, but because he's 90% neck, it's it's it looks really odd in a in an intentional sort of way. That's amusing. Mm-hmm. I might look into that. Uh, I have one last number one to talk about here, and it came as a complete surprise to me. Speaking of things that are funny, Man-Thing number one by R.L. Stein and German Peralta from Marvel. 
R.L. Stein. Wow, I'm I'm feeling old. I'm feeling Ooh. so old, Sean. Just talking about I, it. Well, I mean, we know R.L. Stein. No, of course, the thing is here. I don't know if it's actually R.L. Stein or a ghostwriter or whatever. But straight off the bat, right? Man Thing has thought bubbles and word bubbles. Mm. And at first, I thought that was going to bother me, but it's funny there's the art on pay okay so man thing is working in hollywood making movies uh in in on page five or six he has to go meet the director so he opens the door with his thumb and forefinger because he's enormous and it's such a hilarious visual of him like turning this tiny handle just a lot of visual comedy and the fact that he can talk only makes the situation stein is basically Wait, playing he's him talking yes that's breaking. Oh, that's yeah, that's the one man thing rule that he doesn't talk. It is he just you're burns right. people. You're right. It absolutely is. But it, I I could almost forgive it because it's funny. He throughout the entire issue, he is constantly you know mourning the fact that he can't get a job anymore because he's been fired from this movie because kids don't like the look of him and he's wandering down the uh, uh, Hollywood Boulevard. It's just very, very f- amusing situations that he gets into. You there is one, convinced me? There's okay, one sorry. catch. I'm, no, I'm saying like there, there is one catch here, which is that uh, in the middle of the issue, there is a flashback to Man-Thing's origins. And I don't have any nice way to say this. This is textbook Swamp Thing plagiarism. Well, they came out in the same month. It's one of those weird coincidences of two people have the same idea at the same time as you. Right. Like, it's it's exactly like both the American and the British Dennis the Menace, who are two different characters, but they're still like kids making trouble for adults, came out at the same month. So it is, you know, it happens. Well, the problem is, though, that regardless of the historical argument... After more, there's no point in doing Swamp Thing takes that are not, that are so close to the way that that plays out, right? Because, yeah, it doesn't really matter if Swamp Thing or Man Thing were the first to appear. Once there was such an iconic run that redefined the character, and essentially, you know, Man Thing hasn't had that. Yeah. To the best uh, of my knowledge, he's a character that turns up from time to time when people need to dial he, up the weirdness. The most well-known take is Steve Gerber's uh, early run, which is very weird and therefore not... It's it's popular among uh, amongst uh, yeah. Gerber aficionados, but for most public, it's just... It's the place where Hard the Dog first appeared. He yeah. was in this uh, Man-Thing number 19. It's very idiosyncratic, his run mm-hmm. specifically, and it also, it hasn't really caught on, you know, it's not like, it's sort of similar to what happened when Chips Darsky took over Howard the Duck, and wrote it in a very distinct way that was not Gerber, but in Howard the Duck, nobody really cares about the character's tradition, there's not a lot to compare him to in the overall over of Marvel, right? Yeah, I get With, what you're saying. It's like why you can't yeah. have a new Rip Hunter series after yeah. Harry Potter. Be- not Rip Hunter. Uh, Tim what Hunter? What was his name? T- uh, Bo- Ta- Ooh, Books no, of I Magic? Know, Books of Magic. I forgot yeah. his name. Yeah, it's, it's not Rip. It's Tim Hunter. Like after yeah. Harry Potter, even though he was there first, you can't really do traditional Tim yeah. Hunter because... He came first, but as far as most people are concerned, he's just a Harry Potter ripoff. And the flashback innovates precisely nothing. 
It does I not would, change anything. I would say this. Uh, I'm interesting to read it now that you described it as a comedy series that's actually funny. Yeah. Which is rare for Marvel. It sounds to me like it would have been funnier if he couldn't talk. And it would have been like something from Chicken Boo where he's in Hollywood and he's a big shot star. And he, like, he's a producer without saying anything. Just standing there being a swamp monster. I would agree with that if his dialogue wasn't hilarious. Because what happens is Stein gives him typical movie star dialogue. But it's coming from Man-Thing. Like the dissonance there is where the, the humor is coming from. I, I, so know, looking I'll, at that, I'll, I was like, I'll, that's I'll funny. I'll, I'll wait for the trade, but I'll definitely yeah. read it. I was going ad- to skip the whole thing. Not yeah. Well, Man-Thing the advantage by R.L. Stein. But I will say that the advantage here, and the only reason that I'm recommending it, in spite of my known dislike for what Marvel is doing now, is that it's a five-issue miniseries. If it were longer, I'd say don't even bother. Whatever qualities it may have, whatever positivity, it's Marvel, you can't trust them, forget it. Here, though, five issues, there's not going to be any crossovers. It's just going to be its own thing. And issue, I can... issue four, Inhumans versus X-Men crossover. No, 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 no. Issue no, no, no. five, Secret Empire crossover. They can barely keep their own crossovers together. I kind of doubt they're going to add more. But yeah, so for that specifically, for the five issues, I'd say go for it. Wow, we've managed to do a whole large bunch of comics. Yeah. This new model seems to be working fine for us. I'm feeling it, yeah. Yeah, so uh, hopefully we'll, we'll manage to keep it up. Yeah. Uh, shall, we, shall we finish the show? Absolutely. So... Uh, 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 we should mention once again, this is brought to you by Seekport. You should go to Seekport.org and seek out their articles and their Patreon. Give us money, please. We need it. We want it. We like it. <laughs> uh, if you want to support me and Sean directly, each of us has a book out that you can like buy, and then we get the money from that book. I think that's how it works. I have Curing the Postmodern Blues directly from Seekport, and you, Sean? I have a book out? Well, you, like I'm talking about the book you. Oh, that read. book. <laughs> I, th- I think we should okay. mention it every once in a while because maybe okay. get some new listeners and they're like, "Oh, this guy has a book out. I might want to read it." So, Sean, Fair you have a book out. So, I do have a collection of short stories out called "Visits to Ailing Glen." Uh, you can find it on Kindle, on Amazon. A uh, bunch of science fiction, fantasy, horror short stories. Give it a try. Yeah, and if you want to contact us, I am on Twitter at Tom Shops, and you can just I uh, don't know seek out via Seekward if you want to talk to us directly or something for yep. some reason. And I was Tom Shapira, and I'm Sean Edry. Until next time, bon appetit. Bon appetit. <laughs>